Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So if that is the case, if you would, if you would stand, we would like to recognize you this morning. All right, thank you so much for your service. Uh, I was actually this morning with my, in my growth groups with the youth, I was remembering just the, the generations a little bit of, of individuals who have, who have served. Um, when I was in high school, I got to know a gentleman who lived in our area, and he was a paratrooper on D-Day and got to hear his stories of serving during World War II. One of my uncles served uh, in the Cold War on a nuclear submarine, and then I had a classmate of mine that I graduated with who uh, went and served uh, overseas in Iraq and, Af- and I got Afghanistan. And then I've had youth graduate and go and serve in the military as well. So it's just, for me, it's, I appreciate the military, those that have served and preserved our freedoms. And I was just thinking of all the generations that I, uh, this morning, that have served in, uh, in all the different areas. But, so this morning... We will be in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you turn there, I want to call your attention to an old piece of literature. It's a theme that shows off often, but I think Shakespeare did an excellent job at demonstrating how this theme can be ultimately destructive. He famously called Envy the green-eyed monster. And he called it this in his drama that is called Othello. Othello was a general of the Venetian army. Uh, He was known as a Moor. And he has a traitorous and scheming lieutenant. His name is Iago. Iago sees Othello's success and is jealous of it and is jealous of his new wife uh, that Othello has recently acquired. And he's also jealous that Othello promoted Cassio, who was another lieutenant, above himself. So through his deceit, and treachery, he sows seeds of envy within Othello himself whom, and others whom he dislikes. And of course, like all Shakespearean tragedies, there's a bunch of deaths and stabbings in the end. Um, all because of this green-eyed monster of envy. You know, Christians, we are not immune to the disastrous influence of envy ourselves. Asaph, a music leader of Israel, this is his psalm, He composed this psalm because he felt envious of the lives of evildoers. Sometimes you might be thinking along the same lines of of Asaph here. Is the Christian life worth it? It can be full of suffering and pain and discipline and hard work. It is difficult. The Christian life can be hard. And the world's sense of ease and success can look appealing. So why practice self-denial discipline, repentance, and sacrifice when you can have a life of self-indulgence and sensual pleasure. So to this end, our psalmist is reflecting upon these themes, and he's praying to God to help him to deal with this potential fall into worldliness and sin. So let's pick up Psalm 73 and see how Asaph processes his frustration. 
a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to, into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant towards you. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, this psalm is one of contrast and comparison, and finally, preservation. This psalm can be divided up into several different parts. I was actually thinking this almost reminds me of a good five-paragraph essay. You have your introduction and conclusion in your body. Um, and there you have an introduction of this conflict. You have a resolution. But in the middle, you have Asaph's reflection, where he looks upon the wicked, and then he sees the destiny of the wicked, and then the preservation that God has for them. So in verses 1 through 3 here, we see what seems to be a contradiction. On the one hand, verse 1, you have that God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. And then you have a contrast right away. Asaph um, contrasts that with his nearly stumbling and slipping because of the envy that he has towards the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph has this tension going on within him. And he may be thinking to himself here, and we see this later on, What's the point of living the righteous life as opposed to a life of sin when the sinners seem to have everything going well for them? Since there's no difference of earthly outcome, what's the point? Why not just live like the wicked world? And that's certainly what 
Asaph is alluding to here when he's talking about stumbling and slipping into sin. This apparent contradiction needs resolution for Asaph. You know, one of the things I appreciate about the Psalms is that they are incredibly honest. Asaph is without pretension. He has his genuine problem and concern. However, and this is key, he turns that moment of envy into a moment of meditation and prayer. Now, is that our pattern as well? When confronted with feelings or sin and temptation, which are against God, do we do the same sorts of things? Do we turn it into a prayer, which is really what we're reading here in Psalm 73? So let's see how Asaph processes this in a prayer and this contradiction that he has between God blessing the pure in heart, but the seeming success and prosperity of the wicked. So that's our first point, which is the seeming prosperous life of the wicked. So the prosperous life of the wicked. Verses 3 through 15 all unpack this for us. Asaph observes several times that they are fat several times over and that they have hearts that are overflowing with pride. You see that in verses 6 and 9 and 11. Pride shows up several times over. They also seemingly have a painless life. And they even boast their own opposition against God in verse 11. They are rich in material possessions. Asaph kind of symbolically says it's like they have pride for a necklace and violence as a garment. Asaph seems to say like the wicked have a lot going for them. So he unpacks the wicked as boastful, arrogant, proud, violent, insolent, and prosperous people. So his question then is, why do the wicked prosper like the righteous? Why do what is right if there is no reward? He asks himself this in verses 13 through 15. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Vain means like empty and meaningless. What's the point of it all? And he suffered as well as he notes in verse 14, for all day long I have been stricken. So it's empty, it's vain for me to keep my heart clean. And all of a sudden as well, it seems like I'm going through pain as well. He does seem to kind of take a step back in verse 15 and go, you know, I don't know if I should be talking this way uh, because it doesn't seem how I should be talking as a believer. But all in all, I think Asaph is experiencing the same sort of wrestling and concern we may have as well when we have followed Christ for some point, maybe when we are going through a period of suffering. Why is it that the wicked prosper and seem to have a life of ease and the righteous suffer? What's the point of living righteously if that's the result? Maybe you've experienced that same angst that that Asaph is processing here. Maybe you've been envious at time of evildoers. For example, maybe you're at work. And you have that coworker who cheats, who lies, who works behind the scenes as manipulative in order to receive that promotion and greater income. He regularly does these sorts of behaviors, and then he gets rewarded with the promotion. While you work diligently, you don't spread rumors, you do not gossip, you just work hard to the best of your ability. And then maybe you begin to think to yourself, what's the point when the wicked are rewarded and I just nothing really seems to happen to me. I seem ignored. Or maybe you're a student at school. I know some of you guys just finished school, and you are committed to doing your own work. You write your own papers. You work hard on your math problem. You talk respectfully to your teachers. You try to treat everyone well in school. However, you find that a lot of your fellow students are 
mean and cruel, and they cheat in school on their tests and assignments, and they receive better grades than you, and nobody has ever found out. And you may think, like, what's the point of doing things the right way? Why can't I just be like them and seemingly get that reward? See, Asaph notes that this envious feeling has been uh, that he has and is observing that same struggle that we've all experienced. I recall in high school myself uh, feeling out of place and bullied and lonely because I did not want to join in the locker room antics. Just because I didn't want to join in, I got separated and picked on. So why does the wicked lifestyle hold appeal even for Christians? I think one reason for us why it might hold appeal for us is its relative ease. It's easy in our natural sinful disposition to be like the world. We like conformity. We don't like to be standing out. That's why I think John exhorts us, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, John wouldn't have to say this if it wasn't a struggle. He wouldn't have to say, avoid the sinful world, unless joining the sinful world was a temptation and struggle for us as Christians. We see the worldly promise of a good life, And we want it because it appears easy. The Christian life often is difficult. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a famous British journalist, once observed this, and he said this, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. See, Jesus never promised us ease in this life. He promised us difficulty. John 16, 33 He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, part of the temptation for us to conform to the world is a desire to have it easy, and some sort of easy life that we can slip into at a moment's notice. So maybe that's one of the reasons you may envy the life of the wicked, it seems relatively easy. Another reason, as Asaph stated here, is one of envy. He says as much in verse 3. He's envious of their prosperity. If lifestyle equals outcomes and the wicked life equals a prosperous one, Asaph begins to think, well, why not live like them if I want that prosperous life as well? Maybe he's looking at all their material goods. He seems to suggest as much when he's talking about their their, uh, fatness, which has an idea of being rich. I don't think it's any coincidence that the last of our Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 17, it tells us this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his ox or anything that is your neighbor's. I kind of think it interesting sometimes the list that you find in Scripture where Moses kind of unpacks it. Number one, it's the house, the material goods, then his wife, then his life, and then it's almost like everything, oh yeah, and just anything else. In this very familiar commandment, God's unpacking for us the danger of envying and coveting. 
envying and coveting leads to pursue all kinds of wicked pursuits. That's why Paul would admonish us in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, Paul's argument is actually really clear here. Money itself is not evil, but the love and want of it. Paul notes that that lifelong pursuit of worldly goods leads some to abandon their faith and pursue the world rather than Christ. Maybe you've observed this in a Christian at some point in time. You had somebody who seemingly was on fire for the Lord, but as they grew older and as they, pursued, as they continued in their life, they began to pursue world pursue worldly goods, pursue those sorts of things rather than Christ, and find themselves worrying more about what kind of house they have rather than, am I going to share the gospel with my neighbor, and what kind of person am I on the inside? Now is the time for honesty for all of us. Do we have this same love of money and of possessions as Paul describes? Do we envy the prosperous life of the wicked? Maybe it's not just the prosperity, but it might be the popularity of the wicked as well. Do you think that God is unfair that the wicked have more material goods than you as the righteous? If so, I think it's a good indication for all of us that we have an idolatry of possessions and stuff. Asaph is warning us, and so is Paul and Jesus, that it will kill our soul and faith. The desire for ease and prosperity of the wicked is soul-crushing. Asaph, though, does not end his psalm there. He does not end his psalm in verse 15 for good reasons. Upon reflection, he knows that the promise of worldly prosperity is a hollow one. It's not going to pay off in the end. And it's to that we now turn, which is our second point here, which is the destruction of the wicked. So if the first part has to do with the prosperity of the wicked, the second part is the destruction of the wicked. In verses 16 through 20, Asaph reflects upon the future destiny of the wicked and their stuff. He says that this was a wearisome task of his as he began to to think through this question in verse 16. Until, and this is the key part, until he goes into the sanctuary of of God. This is the key term for Asaph here. On his own, individually, lost in his own world and thoughts, He's struggling and tempted mightily to embrace a lifestyle of worldly sin. However, now when he joins a covenant community of faith, that's what it means to go into the sanctuary, he remembers God surrounded by the things of God, hearing the word of God. See, Asaph didn't attempt to answer all of his doubts and struggles on his own. He sought the help of God and of other believers in the house of God. So what about you this morning? When you're struggling and you're wrestling with temptation, do you seek the the Lord? Do you go to him? Do you go to his people when you have doubts and temptation? Asaph, instead of looking on the inside for the answer to these questions that he has, is looking outside of himself. He's looking to God and to fellow believers to have his doubts and his struggles and temptation answered. And he does have this aha moment in the sanctuary of God in verses 18 through 20. Simply put, Asaph notes that their wicked, the wicked and their prosperity will be judged and destroyed in a single moment 
he says, that entire life, the wicked work so hard to build, will evaporate. He says in verse 19 that they were here, they were destroyed in a moment and swept utterly away by tares. And God sets, in a sense, the wicked up the wall in verse 18. And in verse 20, Asaph says they're kind of like a dream that disappears when we awake. So he concludes that the, the wicked then will fall, their prosperity destroyed, and they will disappear when God rouses himself to judge them. The apparent benefit of being the wicked is lost when God decides to bring swift justice and hold the wicked accountable for their deeds in this life. It's a pretty sobering answer when you think about it, because it's pretty sobering because it reveals how empty the promise of material prosperity is, and how empty our envy of it as believers may be. Why spend so much time wanting their stuff and wanting to be like them, when in a moment when God rouses himself in judgment, it will be destroyed, be laid to waste? It reminds me of what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, how he closes it, In Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27, he says this, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The house is destroyed because it's not built upon Christ. The works of the wicked are brought to nothing. And in a similar image, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So we might envy the wicked stuff. We may even envy the wicked life, but we often need to remind ourselves of the end of the wicked. It sobers us to realize how frivolous and foolish we can be to desire the life and the stuff of the wicked. Asaph says as much in verse 22. He says that he was brutish and ignorant and was like a beast towards you. He realizes that he's thinking like an animal now. He's thinking merely in terms of of pleasure and, and sensual desire, not in terms of eternal godly principles. He realizes that the folly of it is that all that stuff will be disappear in a moment. It will all burn. I realize that there might be many of you here following Christ today that are not in the pursuit of lying, cheating, boasting your way through life. Um, and, and, and for you, this might be a bit of an encouragement to know that, you know what, God is going to reckon and, and make things right. He's going to bring his justice. But maybe some of you are still in that lifestyle. You lie, you cheat, you're pursuing worldly goods, and God's judgment is going to come. God is delaying it. He's being patient with you uh, in your lifestyle of sin. He wants you to repent of that sin and turn to him. This is why Paul would say in Romans 2, 4 through 5, Do you preserve, presume on the richness, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and, and impenitent, impenitent, yeah, I'm struggling, heart, you are sto- storing up wrath for yourself 
on that day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The thing is that you need, as a non-Christian, as someone who is pursuing a life of lying, cheating, boasting, and material wealth, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, to leave your, your pursuit of worldly living and wealth and turn to Christ. Would you repent before you are destroyed? For the Christian, then, this is a motivation for us to warn the wicked of this impending judgment of the wrath of God. They may be temporarily happy, but will be eternally condemned. So we need to warn our neighbors of the fleeting nature of their wealth and their wicked life. This world's goods and stuff and common pursuits, which is why Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes would often call it a vanity, a chasing after the wind. Solomon would essentially is saying, so what if you gain all that pleasure and all the good stuff in life that you, the world tells you that you need? You can't take it with you when you die. See, worldly wealth and wickedness are like illusionists. Illusions are kind of fun. I like, I like going to magicians as much as the next guy. But we know that the illusionist, there's a trick. What my eye sees isn't really What's going on? It's just a magic show. It's an illusion. My own eyes deceive myself. And in the same way, the wicked life and the wealth associated with it is a fleeting shadow and a trick of the eye. We have to see through that trick to the true reality of things. So us Christians, we must ponder eternity often. It sobers us to the things that are really important, the things that will last, and the things that are merely temporary. Ask yourself often questions like, will this matter on my deathbed? Or can I take it with me when I die? See, considering eternity often helps us see through the illusion of the present. Asaph, though, doesn't end his psalm there after reflecting upon, number one, the prosperity of the wicked, the second point, uh, which is all about the judgment and destruction of the wicked, but he knows that on his, on his health, on his own power, he, it's not going to be enough. We are not witty or strong-willed enough to, to make it on our own. We need God himself, which is our third point, is that God steadies us from stumbling into sin. Asaph turns this psalm from this struggle and temptation that he has into a tender moment with God himself. He notes that uh, that God is continually with him. He gives an image that God is holding his right hand. Now, for me, this is something that kind of stood out to me. It reminds me of like a parent helping a child cross the street. You know, streets can be kind of dangerous for little, for little kids. I have a bunch of little nephews and nieces, and often the parent grabs the child's hand to keep them from straying, to hold them secure and safe. And it's God's tight grip on him that is protecting Asaph and us. God's counsel and his word is where we can know, this is verse 24, what it is that we should do. And God is guiding us in how we should do it. And finally, Asaph knows that, there is, that when, we are, when we die or are in glory, we're going to be with God in heaven. I think in a sense, he is describing God's presence, his protection, and preservation of us here. God is with Asaph. He is there to protect Asaph. He is preserving Asaph from straying from the path. Jesus gives us this image in John 10, 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep 
hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it's like Jesus himself is giving us this image of God holding us in his hands. So Jesus is holding us, and God is holding us, and we are being held by God himself. A double-fisted grip on God's people. God the Father and Jesus have such a firm grip on us, God will not so easily give us up. Instead, we are eternally secure with a God who will never let us go. That's why I requested that we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, some of the lyrics of that. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he would hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. So I love the image of this hymn because it is, there's so many things attempting to pull us away from God, but God himself is holding us near him. We need God's sovereign, powerful, providential hand to hold us near his presence. We may be tempted to stray, but God himself is holding us near so we will not stray. Asaph reminds himself in verses 25 and 26 of this simple reality. He asks himself a rhetorical question, whom have I in heaven but you? Answer, of course, no one. And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This reminds me of a passage at the end of John 6. At the end of John 6, Jesus has given some hard sayings uh, to the crowd. And much of the crowd leaves Jesus, and he turns and he sees his disciples. And his disciples are there, and he asks them, Okay, you've seen all these people leave me. What are you going to do? And Peter replies, Jesus, you have the very words of eternal life. Of course we're not going to leave you. Kind of reminds me, Peter just knows the simple reality that, that God is the end of all things. And Peter knows that I must follow Jesus. So it reminds me of a situation I ended up in uh, when uh, Russell, Pastor Sean, and myself were at a conference. We got there late. By the time we landed, got there late, got settled, went to our hotel, and got checked in. It was time for dinner, and it was rather late at night. And so we began to, and it, I believe it might have been a Sunday night or something like that, and we began to drive around trying to find a place to eat. Every place was closed, 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 closed. No place to eat, but there was one place that was open, which was Steak and Shake. So Steak and Shake was our one saving grace. That was the one place that we could go. And what's being described here reminds me of this. Where else can we go? We have to go to God. See, there's a lifestyle choice that Asaph is making. God is holding Asaph secure, but Asaph also wants to hold fast to God. It's kind of a mutual grasp of hands. Kind of thinking about that image again of a, of a parent holding onto a child's hand. Now, the parent has a strong enough grip on, on, on his or her own to bring that child across safely. But when that child holds as well, that grip is even more secure. So Asaph is essentially saying, God, you are holding fast to me. God, I also want to hold fast to you. I want to be with you, and so hold me secure, and I will hold on to you. So it's kind of a paradoxical image 
God is holding on to us, but we are to hold on to him. So which is it? Well, yes, it's both. Asaph knows, though, that his grip is only good for so long, which is why he says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, you know what? God, I can only hold on for so long. I need you to hold me when I may fail. So this psalm has two, I think, uh, but God moments. There's some of those amazing contrasts in Scripture when God shows up. Here's the situation, but God. The first one is in, uh, we find in verse 16, when, when he remembers the judgment of the wicked. But God is going to show up and bring his justice. The other here is in verse 26, when Asaph celebrates the security we have in God himself. We can resist, then, the desire to join the world for two main reasons, according to Asaph. The first one is, the wicked will be judged. God will deal with sin. And the second reason is that God will keep us near him. That's why I think he closes the psalm as he does in verses 27 and 28. He's just restating his observations that he's made so far. Those that are far from God, the wicked, they will perish. You're going to put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But in the end, I want to be near God. God is my refuge. He's my shelter. See, the temptation to be worldly is nothing new. It's an old temptation to think that, that we as believers should join the ranks of the, liver, the, the, the wicked because it's so hard. They have it easy, or so it seems. So why go through such difficulty? The wicked have it all, so why not desire their stuff? Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, 31-33 about the nature of possessions. He says this, Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, our issue in living in this world is to resist the urge to abandon the Christian life because it does not appear to pay off in our lifespan. Jesus, the psalmist Asaph, are warning us to avoid this temptation and desire. Asaph, he says, nearly stumbled, nearly fell into this, uh, this embrace of a life of wickedness. This psalm is reminding us to treasure God himself, to trust in his security, and to bask in his presence. So for us to avoid worldliness, to avoid joining the ranks of the world, I think there's two main applications for us today. The first one is this, that we fellowship with God daily, not just occasionally, not just on Sundays, not just around your Christian friends, but daily fellowship with God. There's a few things that it could mean. For you, it might mean reading your Bible. Maybe you haven't really read your Bible all that much, and you know you need to spend more time within it. Maybe it might mean you download a Christian podcast that you listen to when you're driving around. You maybe even start a journal to record your thoughts and meditations on God himself. The thing is that for us to cling to God, we must exert some effort. God is holding us fast, but we will hold all the more secure the more we seek God and his fellowship with him as a priority every day. The second thing, and we see this uh, when he goes to the sanctuary of God in verse 17, is that we need to fellowship with believers consistently. 
Asaph realized the folly that he was about to join until he went into the sanctuary of God. When he entered the sanctuary, he realized how stupid it would be for abandoning his walk with the Lord to join the rank and file of the wicked. Our consistent fellowship with believers is an important step to make sure we stay in step with the Lord. I think, number one, this goes beyond just mere acquaintances. I know, I know this even within myself, uh, a lot of surface-level conversations we have, which is you know, maybe about the weather or kind of our, our weeks, but when's the last time we've gotten to, to some deep spiritual truths with one another where we encourage a person to, to continue to pursue Christ or engage in a spiritual conversation or maybe even send a text message or a verse to somebody uh, to encourage their walk with the Lord? My hunch is is that many of us may have a shallow faith because we have shallow fellowship with one another. We don't mind each other. We tolerate each other. We generally get along, but we don't actually spend time investing and encouraging one another to pursue Christ. The thing is, this world that we live in is going to continually exert pressure on us to conform to this world. And if we would resist the temptation to join this world and abandon our faith, we need to trust in the secure and gracious grip of God. We need to grasp on to him as well. So Jude gives us, I think, this paradox in his doxology. Jude 24 and 25, Jude writes this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before, before all time and now and forever. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would hold us fast and against the temptation to join the world. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning many of us feel at times, the urge to join the ranks of the wicked, to join in their pursuits. But God, I pray that we would resist the temptation to join the world, to pursue the things of the world. God, instead, help us to hold fast to you. Jesus, I thank you for holding us fast, for holding us secure in your grip so that we would not stray. Jesus, I do ask that you continue to hold us fast to you and that we would also hold fast to you. Lord Jesus, we ask this all in your name. Amen.